conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Well, the week is off to a better start for Governor Josh Green's appointees. The Senate gave a tentative nod to three nominees yesterday. Here to talk about it is HPR reporter Sabrina Bowden. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. So the Senate's Ways and Means Committee uh, gave the initial nod to the tax director, Gary Sukanuma, as well as budget and finance director, Louis Salaveria. And these are people who are known to the administration. They've held uh, high positions uh, in the attorney general's office, as well as in budget and finance. But uh, here we're talking about the Department of Health, and that's uh, Dr. Kenny Fink. And formerly, he's the former Medicaid director for the state, and he most recently served as vice president of Medicare and Medicaid programs at HSMA. And uh, Governor Josh Green actually approached Fink to apply for the position. And there were some concerns when he was first nominated about his time as the MedQuest director. He was there from 2008 to 2015, and he had to deal with slashing the budget during the recession, as well as implementing the Affordable Care Act in the state. And some of the work he did back then continues to help the state. One of the things that I did at that time was successfully negotiating with CMS on the population that we had enrolled in the Quest Ace program such that anything above that, we would get 90% federal matching funds. With the, during the pandemic, it was that adult group that had the greatest increase in uh, number of beneficiaries. And that negotiation then resulted in substantial increase in federal funding received even today. And one of the challenges Fink will have to deal with is vacancies within the Department of Health. The DOH has nearly 40% worth of unfilled vacancies, and he's talked a lot about taking care of his employees and finding ways to repurpose staff positions. We have about 3,300 positions and currently about 850 vacancies. And that is significant and it's impactful. Um, There are things we're not able to do because of our vacancies. We're not able to do, uh, for example, um, follow-ups if someone tests positive for syphilis. Um, And nationally, uh, there's an increase in congenital syphilis. So that's, you know, one example of a tangible impact. And as the department is expected to continue to do more with new requirements, I would like to be able to go through uh, our activities and see, is there anything we can stop doing? Um, And if we can change how we do things, or maybe we're able to stop doing it altogether because some law that was implemented quite some time ago is maybe not be as relevant, then we need to identify that and communicate that and have that discussion. Um, And if the workforce for that can be repurposed, then that would be a better use of those positions. 
I didn't realize there were so many vacancies in that department. Yeah, and coming out of the pandemic, uh, he was talking a lot about burnout and low morale within the department. And under his tenure as director, he would be working on expanding mental health care in the state, as well as defueling of Red Hill. These are ongoing issues that are going on in the state. And during the briefing, Fink was asked if he'd support the state making recreational cannabis legal. And we're seeing the legislation fail this session, but lawmakers have said they'd like to work on a marijuana bill this summer. And historically, the Department of Health hasn't really taken a position, but Dr. Fink said he'd like DOH to partner with state lawmakers on a bill to mitigate health impacts. I believe our testimony has consistently been to provide comment, and we've not taken this into oppose. Um, I will say that with medical cannabis, um, the health benefit um, would be addressed in that program. Um, With recreational cannabis, uh, I believe the evidence would indicate that the um, net harm would outweigh the net benefit from a health perspective. So I will say today that I believe recreational cannabis would have net harm to the public health. However, that's different from making it legal. Tobacco is net harmful and it's legal. So we're here just to provide information on the health impact, and that's our comments, and uh, we're happy to work uh, to how we can mitigate uh, the health impact. It's interesting to see, you know, what he said earlier about, you know, setting priorities, right? Is there mm-hmm. something that we can maybe not do? Uh, but there are some vital things like the, you know, the death and birth um, certificates, you know, mm-hmm. the, I think they they had a vacancy problem and they had a backlog for Gosh, I don't know, I think it was like three months for death certificates, you know, and that's a problem. Yeah, with the Department of Health, they have, they're so far reaching. It's the environment, it's actual health care. So he was really talking about kind of identifying these gaps in vacancies and looking at how to maybe change positions or, you know, make them more useful for the state. Yeah, because you've got lots of uh, uh, priorities, and it, it's tough to pick and choose. You know, if you've, you've, you've got to deal with public health, uh, mm-hmm. how do you pri- prioritize? So, yeah, big challenge. Uh, but a lot of folks, you know, don't really know him. I don't know if he's done, you know, uh, very many hearings before the legislature, because he just started, I think, in, like, February. He only started recently, but during this hearing yesterday, there was a lot of public support from healthcare officials. HSMA was there. I believe Queens was there. Everybody was kind of talking in support, saying that this was a good choice for the Department of Health. Okay. Well, he, he scaled the first hurdle, and then we'll see what how the floor vote plays out. But thanks mm-hmm. so much. Of course. We've been talking to uh, HBR Sabrina Bowden, who has been helping to track the confirmation of Governor Josh Green's appointees. You can read more of her stories on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Reality Check today is all about rail. Honolulu Civil Beat Politics and Opinion Editor Chad Blair joins us this morning. Hi, Chad. Good morning, Catherine. So we have a story today by uh, Kevin Dayton on the cost of rail. 
Yeah, you know, I just I actually just read it through twice, and the thing that comes away, the main takeaway, is there's a lot of dollar signs in his story, and the headline kind of says it all that. The cost for Honolulu Rail is on the rise, and in particular, Kevin's story today deals with the electrical hookups to customers that need to be factored into the overall cost. Right now, about $700 million in contracts, $700 million have already been awarded to relocate utilities right along the, the urban core. But that doesn't include, and this is significant, these transformers and electrical lines that actually will go to homes and businesses that have to basically be hooked up to another source. So the concern is that this is coming, as you know, the, uh, the, 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 the beginning of the rail is supposed to start. You can actually ride it this year, right? They're saying mm-hmm. from East Kapolei to the stadium. Not that there's anything to see at the stadium much right now. I guess you could go to the swap meet, but that is supposed to start this summer. The The total cost uh, currently is $10 billion, if you round up, $10 billion for the 19-mile line. And that's just a South Street, right? And, you know, we... The city has decided, Hart has decided not to go to Alamoana because there's no money. Alamoana Center right now. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I just was driving on a Dillingham yesterday. Oh, you oh, must have saw gosh. the rail line then. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, you can't turn left. <laughs> you got to go all the way down to the end and make your way around. But yeah, no, it is a headache for a lot of those businesses. But yeah, this whole thing about uh, the cost of, you know, the hookup for electricity yeah, I mean, I know they're trying to keep the cost down on uh, other areas, but this looks like a, a tricky one to navigate. Well, you know, Kevin points out that this has been the utility relocation has been a headache for years. And it's not just electricity, right? It's sewer, it's water. Uh, and Kevin says now Hart, the rail authority, will actually be presented with some, some change orders and they could be pretty dramatic. He actually looks back to uh, what it was expected to be way back in 2012. So what, 11, excuse me, uh, yeah, 11 years ago, is that right? Mm-hmm. Hart estimated, hold your breath, $60 million $63 million for basically relocating utilities along the, the urban corridor, which is basically Dillingham through town into Kaka'ako. You look at that figure now and you just you just go, oh, that's absurd. Not only that, you look at that figure and say, well, that was 11 years ago. What might it be uh, several years from now, given the cost of inflation, given the cost Everything's gone up during the pandemic and and the supply shortage, this chain. So um, it's a really uh, an eye raising story. Yeah, you know, I mean, I recall. I think Lori uh, Kaikina Kaikina was telling me that uh, you know they were the supply chain issues, like you'd mentioned, that they were looking at something and were told, oh, it's going to be three years uh, before they can get this particular thing in. And then they said, well, you know, we've worked something out with Hawaiian Electric that we may be able to use something of theirs, you know, that they've got in stock. So, you know, they're trying to find ways to keep the cost down, but... uh, (laughs) Yeah, by the way, Kevin tried to get comment from the rail authority, from the public relations firm that handles... PR and and did not get any uh, direct answer to the questions he wanted to raise. He does a very interesting thing uh, about midway through the the article where he actually sort of goes from year to year to year to plot some of these changes, particularly regarding NAN Incorporated, right, a major Mm -hmm. contractor. So he says in 2018, NAN got about $400 million. 
Uh, that was for relocating 40 miles of utility lines, right? We're talking about all sorts of cables and whatnot. But that was just over the last four miles uh, of the project, which, of course, we're not there quite yet. The idea, as you said, was to keep the cost in line. Well, Kevin then jumps ahead to 2020. Oh, my. Uh, it cost much more to do that relocation. Hart cancels its contract with NAN at that time. And then, whoop. Two years later, there's a new contract, $496 million. This is just for the Dillingham Corridor. So when you see that accretion, uh, if you will, of cost and some of the same companies in mind, you can't help but wondering, well, what's next? Where are we going to go after this? Right. And then he talks about another uh, contract with uh, Frank Coluccio uh, company. Right. There was no dollar sign. Sorry to interrupt you there. Yeah, but you're absolutely right to point that out. There was no dollar sign in Kevin's article about that particular one. But of course, it's not just NAN. There were many contractors on this uh, this multi-billion dollar project now that, as I said, is, is supposed to start here uh, by summer, I think, is the at least the first part of the rail line. Yeah, a little worrisome uh, considering that we are in that final stretch, the most complicated uh, segment, uh, you know, uh, of that route. So keep our yeah, fingers it's not crossed. Like, it's not like you're in a yeah. It's not like you're in a field in East Kapolei. This is the urban. This is the yes. city that we're moving into now. So ah uh, yes. Why did we start the other way? <laughs> that's, another, that's another story. Exactly. But thanks so much, Chad. Sure, Catherine. We've been talking to editor Chad Blair for today's reality check. You can read Kevin Dayton's story online at civilbeat.org. The centerpiece of Lanai's visitor attractions, the Lanai Culture and Heritage Center, recently reinstated regular business hours for the first time since the start of the pandemic in 2020. The center was originally open in 2007 and is focused on educating people about Lanai's legacy by preserving Hawaiian traditions and plantation-era history. The Conversations with Subiona was curious about why it took this long to reopen and how the pandemic may have reshaped the island's perspective on visitors. He talked with the center's executive director, Shelley Preza. Why did the center take a little bit longer to reopen? Throughout the pandemic, we were open kind of off and on when things were okay, you know, when there were starting to be more, you know, visitors coming back and people being, I think, a little more apt to go out. We did occasionally have like some hours throughout the pandemic, but this is the first time we're opening for regular hours for people to come visit us. And I think for us, we're a small community nonprofit organization. So we're very limited with our staff capacity. That's been kind of our, our greatest challenge. And I think a lot of other nonprofits across Hawaii can kind of empathize with that. And so it's just taken us a little bit longer to figure out how we we might be able to serve our community through our museum operations. And you mentioned earlier that the center had been continuing to provide services and, and, and continue to do some things while in the midst of the shutdown due to the pandemic. Can you talk about some of those things that you were able to do during that time? You know, 2022 was a really busy year for us. We were celebrating our plantation centennial and doing a lot of programming around that. We did offer our first ever virtual exhibits. So we'd never done them before. And we released two last year. One that was focusing on plantation life beyond just the work, beyond the labor is the name of the exhibit. And the second one was looking at the changing landscapes of Lanai. And so I think 
focusing a little bit more on what we could do in the digital sphere was another kind of layer of our work last year. So the virtual exhibits were a part of that. And I think part of what was very exciting was we were able to reach a lot of people beyond Lanai that had an interest or maybe grew up here, live elsewhere. And we're so happy to see a lot of the you know photographs that we hadn't displayed before. And we layered in audio so that it kind of helped to color the, the story we were trying to tell. So I think that was really exciting. We also introduced our first ever Kupulau Festival, which we're gearing up for actually this month. And that happened in the spring of last year. And the idea of it was to be able to celebrate and honor the biocultural landscape of Lanai and to kind of inform people about the fragility of our native ecosystems and also kind of what we could do as a community to try to restore health to our aina and to our oceans, all of our landscapes. And so that was a huge festival for, for Lanai. <laughs> so we had, you know, almost about 400 people show up, which for a community of 3,000, just over 3,000, that's a high number. And we gave out native plants to people so they could plant it in their own gardens. We had a bunch of educational booths for people to learn about the conservation efforts happening here on island. And so that was a really great way, I think, of engaging with the community. It was our first big event kind of coming out of COVID, but really showed us that the local community was excited to uh, be participating in some of our educational outreach efforts. And I've read that teenagers are a big part of making the reopening possible. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So, you know, like I said earlier, I think one of our big challenges is our staff capacity. And we really wanted to figure out a way we could open soon so that we could welcome visitors and our residents back into our museum space. And so while we plan on hiring a position this year for caring for our museum operations, learning how to be a docent, in the interim, I thought it would be a good idea to train some student interns and allow them to become docents for the museum in the meantime. And so we're very lucky. We have two high school student interns that I spent a lot of this past month training Training. We went out to different places on Lanai to learn about the history, culture, and we just spent many hours kind of reviewing Lanai's history, what they should learn about, what people ask when they come into the museum, kind of preparing them for that. And so when we opened this past week, we are opening with our two interns as the docents who are welcoming people into the museum. So we're very grateful for them. They're doing this after school. So they're both in a dual enrollment program. So they end their typical school day around 12 o'clock. So it was kind of perfect to be able to open at least for a couple hours in the afternoon for people to come in and visit the museum. After pineapple production wrapped up on Lanai, it was replaced with tourism as the primary industry there. Then tourism took a hit across our islands during the pandemic. Are there any signs of recovery on Lanai, what have you seen in regard to visitor industry there? You know, I think that I'm definitely seeing more visitors back on island compared to a year ago or even two years ago. You know, it's funny because I feel like in some ways, and I think a lot of Hawaii communities were kind of experiencing this during the pandemic when there were no visitors. In some ways, it was nice, right? Because, you know, you have like it's just local families on the beaches. It's, you know, very uncrowded. And I feel like on Oahu, especially that difference was very stark. On Lanai, we're starting to see more of, say, the day visitors coming back. You know, the tourism model on Lanai has changed a lot in the past 30 years when, you know, after it became the main economic industry. And I think the visitors who are staying on island are maybe a little bit more of a higher paying clientele. The two hotels are are not 
cheap to stay at, right? right? And so I think that's a model of tourism that Amlina is looking at for its economic viability. But I am seeing more day visitors coming back. So those are the people who are taking the ferry over from Maui for the day, just spending a little time in town and then going back. And so I feel like a lot of those people are the ones who are coming into the museum because they tend to drop off right in front of our center, which is convenient. And I think what's important for us as a museum is just to be able to inform anyone who has an interest in learning about Lanai. And I think if people make it over just for the day or they're staying at the hotel here for a few days, I think we have something to share with people that hopefully will be relevant to them and make them feel a sense of, I guess, responsibility to treat our island with respect and a sense of, I guess, just appreciation for the fact that we do have a really rich history and culture here. I think Lanai sometimes tends to get overlooked <laughs> just in in general. You know, we're a small island. We don't have a big population, but I think we have so much to share with others. I know the pandemic changed many people's perception of the industry in Hawaii. Mm-hmm. And we've seen some islands or at least some communities on the other islands want to kind of rethink how tourism is managed across the state. Do you have a sense of how Lanai feels about that? Were they impacted in that way by the pandemic or did their view not really change over the last three years? You know, I don't want to speak for the whole of the island, but I do feel like from what I was seeing, I think Lanai people have always kind of felt that there needs to be a balance with the tourism industry and the quality of life for local people. I think that's something that is not necessarily a new thing for the Lanai community. I mean, I say this because I think people who choose to spend their lives here and choose to live here, it's because we love the lifestyle. We love that it's not crowded. There's no traffic lights. It's not super bustling downtown Honolulu or Waikiki. That is a big part, I think, of why people choose to live here, even though, you know, the cost of living is high. You know, getting to and from Lanai is not always easiest, you know, especially with airlines and stuff. We're having a lot of issues with that right now. But I think certainly the pandemic, I think, brought to light different issues that I think have existed for a long time. I'm not sure like how the whole of the community felt. You know, some community people did participate in that destination management action plan that HTA was, you know, Hawaii Tourism Authority was kind of trying to do on each island. And based on, you know, conversations from those different groups, I attended some of those meetings. I think there was this desire to try to balance the economic benefits of tourism with, you know, for small businesses, for, you know, the hotels here on Lanai, but also ensure that people who are visiting Lanai are deeply respectful of our place, of the people, and are taking time to learn about the place that they're visiting and that they're having the privilege to visit. And I think that's kind of, you know, circling back to the Lanai Culture and Heritage Center, I feel like that's the role we can play in helping to ensure that people who do choose to come at least can have a more informed and hopefully be a little bit more culturally conscious about the the place and the culture that they're stepping into. And now that the center is open, I think it's a pretty exciting time. What do you want the public to know? What's the coolest thing they'll be able to see there or learn there? The one artifact that I think is really interesting in our museum that kind of bridges not just Lanai people, but also kind of connects us to other communities in Hawaii is the Kaukau Tin. Have you ever heard of that? No. The Kaukau Tin is kind of this small container that was made out of metal and there were two compartments. So there's a bottom compartment that then gets stacked on with the top compartment. It has a lid on the top 
And that it was kind of like the bento box that people would take to work with them during the plantation days. And so I think what's really cool about it is a lot of people who have ties to the plantation eras, not just on Lanai, but across Hawaii, they'll say, oh my gosh, my grandma had one of those. Or, you know, they they have had relatives who have this cow cow tin. And we have this great picture on our wall at the center that shows a bunch of guys who are out in the field eating together each holding their cow tin. And I think what's special about it is they're all holding the bottom portion, which typically would hold like the rice, like that kind of thing. But they would all bring a different type of food in you know, their top compartment. So whatever culture they're coming from, right? If they're Japanese, Korean, Chinese, Hawaiian, they'll bring whatever you know they have made at home or their parents made at home. And then they all put that top portion in the middle. So they all share. And I think that that is a really symbolic way of showing how close Lenai people were able to get during the plantation days and kind of really how the local culture in Hawaii got started. It was really this blending of different people coming together, having a shared experience out doing, you know, really laborious work, but also finding a lot of camaraderie and being able to relate to each other across ethnic lines through sharing food. I think that is something that I really resonate with. I think people can still relate to today. And I just love looking at that picture because I I feel like it's just quintessential Lanai plantation history. Like that's kind of what I think of when I think of the people of the plantation. So I think that's one of my favorites for sure is the cow cow tin. It sounds like the origins of the mixed plate. Yeah, honestly, <laughs> I'm like, it's like the, the adaptation of like the bento box slash. Yeah, the, the mixed plate. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for your time, Shelly. I really enjoyed talking to you. You're so much fun to talk to. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the fact that you're taking time to talk to me. I feel like Lynette often gets overlooked in general, so I I really appreciate the time to talk story. That was the Nye Culture and Heritage Center's Shelley Preza talking with HPR's Russell Subiano. The center is now open Monday through Friday from 1 to 3. We'll have a link to more information on the conversation page of our website later today. Support for HPR comes from the Hawaii Symphony Orchestra's Beyond the Music series finale. Mayan Chen conducts excerpts from Arnold Schoenberg's Transfigured Night, April 13th at Studio 909. MyHSO.org. Wild Growth. That's the name of an art exhibit featuring surrealist paintings of tropical flowers by Honolulu native Ralph Iwamoto. They were painted over 60 years ago, but are now on display in New York City's Hollis Taggart Gallery. Iwamoto's career spanned from the 1950s until his death in 2013. The Nisei artist tasted success early when a painting done at Kabananakoa Junior High was first exhibited at a Honolulu Academy of Arts children's show and later at the Carnegie. Institute for Art. During World War II, he served as a translator in Japan and in 1948 used the GI Bill to travel to the Big Apple to study at the Art Students League. 
The Conversation Civilian Song sat down with art historian Jeffrey Wexler to talk about rediscovering Iwamoto's unique style of abstract art. 1955, that style that he had, he was doing floral, surrealistic canvases. Oh, yes. The show right now that's in the gallery, people are commenting about how colorful they are. One of the nice things about having work rediscovered is that obviously many works which have been in storage over the years do get a bit dirty, dusty, so forth, and need to be cleaned professionally. And that's what was done for these paintings. And uh, they have brightened up to their original colors quite (laughs) spectacularly. Everybody's commenting about how uh, bright and lush the colors are. And of course, to some extent, that's not only because of Ralph Iwamoto's interest in color in general, but it is reflective of the Hawaiian landscape and the vegetation with various flowers specific to Hawaii being shown in his work, such as the Bird of Paradise or the Heliconia, So this makes her a very, very colorful, bright work. And how were you first introduced to the art of Ralphie Uomoto? That was through a uh, very large exhibition uh, dealing with Asian-American artists. I did that for Rutgers University, where I used to work as a senior curator. The name of the show was, it's a bit long, (laughs) it was called Asian Traditions, Modern Expressions, Asian-American Artists and Abstraction, 1945 to 1970. That show was done, uh, well, way back in 1997. And what that show was trying to present was that the very famous American style of abstract expressionism, I had noticed that there were a considerable number of Asian-American artists who were doing abstract expressionism. And what was interesting is that they often tended to link it with aspects of traditional Asian art. The Asian-American artists, as unfortunately sometimes happened, were rather ignored by the art world in general, especially since abstract expressionism was talked about the most, let's say, in New York, was seen to be an East Coast type of a thing. But in my exhibitions, I tend to try to show that many of these styles and histories of American art were much more of a truly national exploration. And so when I did that show, one of the artists in it was Ralph Iwamoto. Because one thing I was very happy about with that show is that actually I managed to uh, have about eight artists who were born in Hawaii. And that was uh, very unusual for that time for an exhibition. Besides Ralph Iwamoto, there was Satoru Abe, Isami Doi, uh, Sueko Kimura, Tetsuo Ochikubo, Tadashi Sato, Toshiko Takaezu, and Seng Yuho. All those artists were born in Hawaii, some stayed in Hawaii, some moved to the United States. But that was the grouping of eight, which were in that 1997 exhibition. Okay. This is when Ralph Iwamoto first comes onto your radar. Do Do you meet him and do you work with him? Well, from 1997 on, I met him when I was organizing that show. Uh, You know, I worked with him on and off, uh, knew a bit of what he did. I think I managed to suggest his work for a couple of other shows and a couple of other galleries. And basically, it was sporadic. I always kept in touch with him. And on his passing, I believe the family knew I was working with him and got in touch with me. And that's where that specific relationship happened with the estate itself. What was Ralph Iwamoto like as an artist? Uh, 
Well, as an artist, he was very productive <laughs> during the years that he was working. He really enjoyed working in series, you know, for example, the uh, works that are in the Hollis Taggart Gallery right now. Besides being very productive and very obviously serious about what he did, he was also very precise. You know, he actually switched into geometric abstraction, which is interesting. And that, of course, if, if done well, takes a great deal of precision and a great deal of planning. To me, one of the really interesting things about his art is that geometric abstraction is often a style which is not that popular <laughs> to many people. But somehow, I mean, through his own perception and his own design sense, he was able to do extremely strong and interesting geometric abstraction. I consider that one of the hardest styles to do in a successful way and have people in general enjoy it. But he was very good at it, very precise, also precise about record keeping on the back of his paintings. Some artists don't put a lot of effort into the documentation of the work. Of course, some do, but... What was good about Ralph Iwamoto is that he actually very carefully put all the information about the art on the back of paintings that he did. And if it was work on paper, it was very much uh, you know, what the series was from, the titles, the size. Interestingly enough, he himself as a person was, uh, well, not the opposite, but he was a very uh, casual person, very uh, easy to talk to. He talked a great deal, enjoyed that and uh, very pleasant, very nice. So uh, you would not necessarily know about the precision of his paintings from uh, speaking to him. So the Hollis Taggart Gallery in New York City, their mission is to focus on artists from the past who are worthy to bring their work back into the light. So for Ralph Iwamoto, why is it that his work is being chosen in this latest exhibit? Well, they enjoy creating exhibitions, whether an individual or whether a group exhibition, which look back at the history of art, well, American art and 20th century art in particular, and try to find artists and styles which have not been appreciated enough. And the reason I do work with them is because that is exactly what I do. Essentially, if one could say I had a specific field in art history, I would say it is exactly that. I look for American modern and contemporary artists who have not gotten enough credit historically. And so basically, my interests and the interests of the Holostag Gallery mesh. So therefore, uh, I've been, you know, worked with them a bit over the years. And uh, the art of Ralph Mode is a, you know, a perfect example of that. He's a very significant artist, an artist of very high quality, who simply needs to be rediscovered and reappreciated for what he's done. Very, very interesting, very complex body of work. And he's uh, an example of that type of artist who, for whatever reasons, and various reasons, uh, just wasn't known enough uh, currently, but now sort of has this second historical chance, especially being shown at a major New York gallery with a, you know, very interesting shows to come in the context of Asian American art. You know, it is important to show that there were a large contingent of very good Asian American arts throughout American art history in, in the late 20th century and even in the early 20th century, who have not gotten enough of recognition. There's been a good deal done about Asian-American artists actually on the West Coast in California, basically because of the linkages between the West Coast of the United States and East Asia. But in general, Ralph Uoto would be a very nice prime example of Asian-American art 
which has some ties to uh, traditional Asian art, but is within the realm of American abstraction, and therefore part of a very important part of what the United States has contributed to world modern art and American modern art, but has been relatively forgotten to this point and deserves better recognition. I have not had to sit through an art history lecture for a while, but with the changing times, would you say that professors now are art colleges? Are they able to then also, are they hearing people like you in in that you're raising awareness of these artists? Are they getting brought into the classrooms, into college spaces so that the next generation can look at his work and say, I see it, or I can learn about his influence during that time in art history on the East Coast? Well, basically, the educational aspect of it is very open-ended right now, as the art educational grouping is very much into the concept of diversity at the moment. It's a very, very important point in college education and high school education to some extent throughout many universities and colleges in the country. And this type of study of you know, any given Asian American artist is significant because of those general interests in diversity. For Ralph Iwamoto specifically, the way you get people known and linked in and taught about in universities and other schools is simply to show the work as we're doing now at the Hollis Tiger Gallery. The word gets out, hopefully reviews get written, and of course, just like now, sometimes they get on the public radio stations and people learn about it. And that's how the links from one to another, it's all sort of both word of mouth, public media, social media, all the rest, that the word gets out about a good artist who's now once again in the public eye and hopefully you know, might get added to a, an Asian-American art curriculum somewhere in some university within the country. And you know, it just starts to percolate, as publicity does for any type of art exhibition or artist in particular. Okay, and a fun fact about Ralph was that in the late 1950s, he worked as a guard at the Museum of Modern Art in New York, and he was forming close friendships with working artists. He and his wife Kay Zimmerman lived in an artist loft where they were mutually inspired by the creatives in that space. In speaking with his niece from Texas, Mia Mason, she explained how he was just a prolific artist and he was very productive, but he was not a self-promoter. Isn't that yes, difficult that, to be a working artist? Well, artists, of course, all have their own ways of approaching their art and approaching their careers. You know, he had a reasonable amount of success, I would say, early on, especially with those paintings from the late 50s. But he also did not seem to be a person who, you know, was like a careerist. He did not push his art onto other people. He was not, as far as I know, uh, constantly, uh, you know, trying to get uh, into galleries, into museums. He obviously did many times, but he was just, you know, as I said, a very casual, relaxed person, was content to do his own art. Between he and his wife, they apparently had enough to make a reasonable living. You know, that's the way he approached his work. Sometimes it's good because many artists get very, very, of course, frustrated not being able to get their work in galleries or not be able to sell a great deal of work, but it apparently did not bother him that much. He just did his work, and uh, as things came, uh, they came. 
I don't think he was really aggressively pushing himself out there. Many artists, of course, want to be well-known or famous, <laughs> but that didn't seem to be his course as far as I could tell from my conversations with him and my meeting him at various times. You know, in a certain way, <laughs> as long as he was okay in life and things moved along for him, I, that to me is a, a very nice way of doing things. You're not upsetting yourself or getting nervous about your career. You're just continuing and enjoying the process of making your art. But I'm going to be very interested to see when some of Ralph's later works, let's say from the 80s or 90s, like that, uh, he did a lot of work that was quite minimal and geometric in form. And many European museums are buyers of that type of work, especially historical. So uh, it'll be interesting to, to see if there's any interest from Europe when some of these works sort of get out there and are recorded in public exhibitions. I said, you never know. <laughs> <laughs> well, time will tell. But thank you so much for sharing your stories and your expertise with Iwamoto and you know, helping raise awareness. Oh, sure. Well, I'm, gl I'm glad to do it. Anything that gets more people to know about Ralph Iwamoto and you know, he deserves some more recognition, uh, I'm happy to do it. And that was H. Paris Lillian Song talking with art historian Jeffrey Wexler about the art of the late Ralph Iwamoto. The exhibit, Wild Growth, Ralph Iwamoto's Surrealist Works from 1955, is currently on display at the Hollis Taggart Gallery in New York City until April 15th. It's the first in a series of exhibits celebrating Iwamoto artwork planned for the next few years. We'll have photos and links on the conversation page of our website later today. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa. The next in-person info session for the 2023 Executive MBA is April 11th, scheidler.hawaii.edu slash events. When the world is overwhelming and the news is heavy and grim, we often seek sanctuary, inspiration. You've told us HBR is that place for you. We're here to uplift community voices, whether it's through stories that illuminate our understanding or through handcrafted playlists that captivate our spirit. Help support HPR, your treasured place, at just $10 a month. Donate now at hawaiipublicradio.org. Namele Paniolo, Hawaii's cowboy story set to music. Kamehameha Schools chose cowboy culture as the theme for the annual song contest, now in its 103rd year. The junior class ran away with many of the top awards. Take a listen to the co-ed class perform Waimea Cowboy. We welcomed in our studio recently junior class director Taitea Sunaoka and program director Chad Takasugi. 
They jokingly refer to themselves as city boys. I'm I'm gonna be completely honest. I am a city boy myself, <laughs> born and raised on the island of Oahu in town. So I would never pretend to you know represent that story. But I think that's maybe one of the most important things about song contests and about events like this is that we love to tell people that these are our stories, the collective our stories. Yes, I may not be a paniolo, Taitea may not come from that that background, but these are still our people's stories. And what we gain from that is the fact that we can learn from our kupuna their grit their resilience the stories of our of the paniolo and the, the tragedy that they felt the the success that they've seen across the world these are all really good examples of the resilience of our people and so if there is an opportunity for us to kind of tap into that without being a part of that particular lifestyle it's still a part of our lahui and that's i think what's really exciting for the kids is you know if you have a chance to actually connect to a story that you know you may not think you connect to but if you find that connection it it connects you to your kupuna which is really a, a huge part of the experience of Kamehameha is is if you can make that connection to your kupuna you are drawing from ancestral knowledge and strength that is going to make you successful as you grow as a learner. And we paid homage to a couple of cowboys that night. It was our honor and our privilege to be able to host some real-life paniolo um, that, that flew in from Hawaii Island. I thought it was very heartwarming that during his introduction, Dr. Chen actually took the moment to introduce them to the rest of the audience. And it was a really kind of heartwarming moment because I think everybody in the arena immediately understood. I may not know who you are, Uncle, but I understand how much we owe you because of your commitment to this lifestyle and our practices. And jump in here, because you went to Waimea and you kind of got a feel for what these songs were all about. Mm -hmm. um, what was that like for you, performing in front of these paniolo? It was like totally different from just performing as a competition. It was really something that these, they're here, these people are here, these people that these stories are about and telling about, they're here listening to us and I feel like that was really well brought and shown in our singing and, and the way we held ourselves that night. Throughout our whole class you could really see them like oh we are singing to honor these people not just for our competition. Well, you know, watching you that night um, direct the group, the class, I, I could see you. It was almost like you were on a on a horse. <laughs> you know, it was it was really wonderful. And the the song that the the boys and the girls sung together, Kila Kila Nuff, Rough Rider, yeah. um, Waimea Cowboy, was yeah. just it was so much fun. <laughs> what was it like for you? Because you actually spent some time there in Waimea, kind of getting the feel for the place. Yeah, it was it was a really great trip that we took up there, and the main thing that we really as directors really wanted to try to do was bring that feeling back home to our our classmates to really show to them what this is all about because before our prior knowledge about cowboys and paniola was that just like western cowboys riding on horses and you know all those stereotypes but then going to my man actually learning about these ohana and these families who have been living in this lifestyle for so long it was something completely different which i feel like we got to our class pretty well and them understanding the life of these paniolo and really understanding the meaning behind the lyrics of the song is something that made the song sound the way it did the added nerves of the paniolo being there right it's kind of like oh i don't want to mess up or tell this story in a wrong way so i think our class really had fun with it and because they got to meet the paniolo that we talked to before song contest started they kind of built a small connection and really clicked in them like okay these are who these songs are for. Well, when you were in Waimea, did you get on a horse? I didn't get to on the trip we went to, but I went up recently and didn't get to. Oh, good. Yeah. Okay, so you really got a feel for, for what it's 
liked it. Yeah. And and Chad, talk about you know the the fun that everybody had really kind of interpreting these songs because I think as I mentioned before, I happened to be listening to you know the Waimea Cowboy song and I heard a version you know John Cruz and Brother Nolan <laughs> and Henry Capono, but I really liked the the song contest version best. <laughs> right. I mean, I think there's something very special about the ability for music in general, but but in this case, choral music, to actually kind of capitalize on some of just the musical elements that you have available to you. You know, in song contests alone, you know, between the 10 competition songs that are that are performed, you know, you, you could feel stories of loss. You could feel stories of tragedy. You can feel stories of championship winning success. And, you know, that's because at some point for a lot of our students, it becomes, there's a transition. There's practice, practice, practice a song. And then you turn a corner and you realize that it's actually more than a song. And all of these elements together help to realize that not only are you participating in a 136-year you know, tradition, but you're also kind of cashing in on a little bit of the kuleana that you have, the, the responsibility and obligation you have to actually keep these songs going. And I think Titea is talking about that a little bit. There comes a point where you turn the corner and you realize, I'm not just seeing notes and words here. I'm actually telling your story. And and to a certain degree, I'm telling my own story. And if I really want to think about it, I'm telling my kid's story. And it's that intergenerational connection that I think has made something like Song Contest so well embraced by our community because, again, it's, it's not necessarily having that experience in the song, but just realizing that as a collective, the, this is our history. We become record keepers when we sing these songs and we tell these stories and we make sure that people are, are walking away with just more than, oh, it was so pretty. But the fact that we really understood what we're doing and, and the obligation that we have, it makes it that much more powerful. Well, what I loved about it is listening to that music and it really did kind of tug at my heart. I mean, I could visualize the cowboy riding off in the sunset, you know, and we were, were chatting about Hawaiian cowboy, you know, the, the the junior class did, how they were just were creative, and yet they got it. <laughs> yeah, and you know, and I think, you know, Tete actually has first-hand experience in this now. Like, it sounds different even. when you when, Once your class actually gets to that point, some classes take longer than others to get to that point, but once you get to that point, the, it sounds different. They've internalized the song, and they've kind of realized like, okay, I'm not just singing these series of notes on the paper. I'm now actually making sure that you understand the mana'o that's behind it. And if you walk away with that, then, then we will be successful. And that changes the way you sing. So talk about Hawaiian Cowboy and the emotions that you saw, you know, as you were trying to get the class to understand what that song was about. Yeah, so Hawaiian Cowboy is a very playful and really fun song. It was written by Soul Cave Bright, and it was just a song that he wrote on the spot in one of his performances in San Francisco. And to our class, we really wanted to explain that this is the kind of song that it is. It's a fun, fun Paniolo song and, like, more about like the life that they had and the, the fun that they had during their life. And in the arrangement of our song, you could feel the different mood changes from starting off kind of slower in the beginning and then picking up to like a very home on the range type of life of cowboy. And then shifting to a more Western type of cowboy to pay homage to them. And then shifting back to our home back here and 
just how our melee sounded. Yeah, it was fun with all the yodeling. Yeah. <laughs> Working that in there. And then, Chad, you had mentioned that they had actually tried to incorporate some themes of some of the Western. They did. I mean, I think some of our more seasoned listeners might have recognized, you know, some of the themes that were pulled from old TV shows, uh, Bonanza and, you know, stuff like that. That's a little bit before my time, but but I, t- I, I was told. <laughs> I was told. And again, like, I think that is just another device to connect with a listener in a way. I mean, you know, we, we love to kind of use the, you know, the example you said earlier about radio, right? Theater of the mind. And, you know, if we can help to create that visual and pull you away from the arena for just a minute and actually start to envision that that cowboy riding, riding off into the sunset, right? Or or, or the that wilted lay representing your, your, your ache of the ache of your heart. I think that's what success looks like. You know, at the end of the night, it's a competition, but trophies, look a little bit different when, when you have that in mind. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned that you were able to go back to Waimea again. Yes. What was that like? So it was actually really special to us. We got to go back as our tour for Concert Glee. And in that tour, we took the whole Concert Glee to go meet the people that we were talking to, the Paniolo families that we were talking to. And it was just such a different feeling after song contest. It was a great opportunity for everyone because they got to they got to see in person, oh, even closer, these are the people that we are singing for. And we went to the Paniolo Preservation Society and we got to sing all of our melee there. A really special moment was we sang the sophomore co-ed and my cut you Waimea. And in that song, it talks about the pu'u in Waimea and the names. And it was just such a special moment being being there as Kantigli and being there as Halmana next to this Paniolo. And you could really see the emotion in their eyes when they heard our voices talking about all the pu'u that they were right in front of us that we could all see. And it was just such a beautiful moment going up there again. And again, there was a totally different feeling from being in competition. It was like, we are really here in this place and singing about um, this area that these people have lived through or lived in their whole lives. Yeah, chicken skin. Yeah, if I can just kind of jump in, I mean, that's exactly what I'm thinking is chicken skin. I'm sitting here listening to this, and if you deconstruct what he, what Taitea is saying here, I mean, he's pretty much taken us out of a song performance, and he just gave us a history lesson. He gave us a geography lesson. He gave us uh, an anthropology lesson. You know, I mean, all of this, this is what Hawaiian culture-based education really is it's starting to look like, and we're using the vehicles like Mele to be able to teach things that quite honestly I'm not really sure you'd get in a normal classroom lesson and so you know that's the kind of vai um, vai the value right that these kinds of things are, are are doing for not only us as listeners but for for the kids as, as performers as presenters um, and, and again keepers of of these mo'olelo these these histories well, thank you so much, Kamehameha Schools, for this tradition of song contest. Thank you, Chad. Thank you, Totea. I just so appreciate your time here with us to keep the stories alive. Mahalo, Mahalo. for having us. That was Kamehameha Schools' Chad Takasugi and Taitea Sunaoka talking with us about celebrating Hawaii's Paniolo history. We leave off with more Paniolo Mele. And that wraps it up for us today. Tomorrow on The Long View, we talk mental health. 
Share your comments or questions by talking or by calling our Talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can find the Conversation Podcast on our website or on Spotify or Apple. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. Thank you.